Oh, Harrison, do you know what this is? A beard? Oh, no, no, yeah, I'm stroking my beard because I'm, yes. I'm deep in thought as I reflect on what we're about to uh, allow our listeners to listen to. Uh-huh. But you know what that is? Or what this is as in a podcast? This is a very special episode. Is is it? I think so, because we're breaking from our format pretty completely here. This is true. So. Well, because it's not uh, one year. It's not one year. What? It's not our, it's not our, it's our, sorry, it's not our second year anniversary. Because no. that's in August. Mm-hmm. No, it's a different kind of special. Are we coming up on episode 100? Or is this episode 100? Did we do, is this episode 100? We are bad at podcasting things. I, I, I'm going to effort this right now because this is, these are, this is, this is the important, this is the stuff people care about, you know, and, and this wanted. is our worst intro ever. This it's so is our 100th episode, actually. Wow. <laughs> we should have prepared for this. We totally should But anyway, okay, so this is what's going on. This is what's going Apparently, on. Apparently none of this was on your mind, so that's okay. Anyway, no, I noticed no. because uh, producer Riley texted us saying episode number 100 is coming up. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wait, it is. And yeah, so uh, we've done it. We're in three digits now. That's fascinating. Yes. Um, and I don't know whether it's ironic or apropos that for our 100th episode, we've accidentally destroyed the format of what we normally do. Yeah. So we wanted to have Sam Rocha on because uh, we mentioned his debate with Trent Horn a couple of podcasts ago. And the idea was to, you know, like a half hour, 45 minute interview. But we just kept on talking. We yeah. talked for like an hour and six minutes. That's right. And we talked about some socialism stuff. We talked about race stuff. We talked about modernity. We talked a little bit about the liturgy. Um, and and it was just a lot of fun. And I think, well, okay. I think this is you. You kind of do preface this. Uh, we're, we're gonna. I'm gonna remove the let's, curtain. Let's a preface bit. before the preface. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, we're actually recording the intro after the interview. Yeah. Here, mm-hmm. so uh, you made a good point in this thing. Like this is a discussion, and 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 something Sam brought up in his debate with Trent that I think is so important. I know for some of our listeners, some of the stuff we're gonna talk about, they're gonna have visceral reactions to. And yeah. they're probably going to want to turn the podcast off in the sense that like, because perhaps it doesn't align with their political vision. Sure. Right. But the whole point of the pot of this episode was to bring out the broader discussion that Catholic social teaching, Catholic moral teaching, et cetera. And the subtleties around the conversation that um, maybe things, yes, there is clear teaching in the church, mm-hmm. but the lived, kind of incarnation of how we live that teaching is messy because history is messy. And so we got to be careful about judging things in absolutist terms all the time. And that's, I think, something we've always tried to do is say there's a subtler question at play. There's a subtler thing at play that we need to, that we need to address. And I, so I just, you know, I pray that you'll listen in charity. Yeah. And I think we need to remember that like so much of our, um, discussions around things that go on either in the church or in the world are adversarial. We have to be better than that. We have to allow ourselves to have difficult conversations mm-hmm. and maybe to talk to people we don't agree with. And not necessarily everything that Sam and, you know talks about we necessarily agree with wholeheartedly, but it was a worthwhile discussion. It was a bringing up of these ideas, and I think it was really interesting. I think it was really fun. Uh, so uh, there you go. There's. Are you excited now? Are you excited to hear it? I can't are wait. You the spice. Are we going to get canceled? Are we going to trigger people? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Click. That was um. That was a clickbait sound. My goodness. Let's just get to the interview. I'm having uh, a little bit of difficulty with this episode, Harrison. I'm not gonna lie. 
because we're doing something that we have not done before, and I'm going to be very vulnerable and just say that I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. Okay. Because uh, for this episode, not only are we having another layperson on, which we try to avoid, mm-hmm. but we have another Canadian on. So there's two Canadians, and not only well, that... he's kind of a hybrid of both of us. Uh, yeah. Because he's, Amer- he's American by nationality, but he right, lives right. in the great amazing province of bc you know what we call that in america we call it a traitor harrison and to make things worse to make things worse we're recording this on a day where you people get superpowers today is canada day that's right and you know how we celebrate it (laughs) how do we celebrate it by treating it like a sunday Amazing. We, so, we are we are the most unpatriotic people out there. <laughs> so before I make more Canada jokes, uh, I like to introduce and oh Sam, I didn't ask you beforehand how to pronounce your last name. Cha like chocolate. Rocha. So Rocha. Sam Rocha, welcome yeah. to Clarically Speaking, man. Yeah, hey, welcome. thank you, thank you too for having me. No problem. Yeah, so I, been, I have oh, I have I have a question. Oh, okay. this is an important question. Father Harris has been dying to ask you this. Okay. Like, yes, here's yes, here's, here's how you do a good interview, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to ask questions that kind of warm up your guests to make them feel comfortable. Exactly. So in the spirit of that, Father Harrison has a very non-threatening question to ask you. Oh, Why boy. don't you follow me on Twitter? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So I am horrible at my followbacks. Just, 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 uh, just, yeah. <laughs> just, just send me a DM, man. I'll follow you up right away. I promise. Yeah, you are. By the way, can I make it? We are. We are. We're in the same province. Yeah, I know. Here's the thing, though. Priests in 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 BC are very touchy. I've had like two or three priests actually send me through various friends saying so and so, Father so and so, really wants you to follow them back on Twitter. So you're now like the third (laughs) BC priest. Yeah, BC priest who's uh, given me. But the first from the island. That's true. That is true. The first from the island. That's right. Well, here's the thing. We, you know, priests, we're, we're very sensitive about our worldly glory, and yes. uh, we're very sensitive. This is clerically speaking, so we're all about clericalism as well. So to have, you know, a layperson not follow you back is just abhorrent Ouch. to Ouch. our souls. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but it's really uh, it's really awesome to have you on the podcast, and uh, we really, we both enjoyed the debate, and I, and uh, we thought, hey, let's, uh, let's bring Sam on, and, and let's talk about this topic. Awesome. So, I'm excited yeah. to talk yeah. about it. So for those who don't know, uh, Sam Rocha, you've gained a little bit of internet uh, fame, and you're starting to make the podcast rounds and everything. And this all sort of began, I believe, um, around your debate with Trent Horn from Catholic Answers. And Trent Horn had uh, recently published a book, and it's called something along the lines of, uh, Can You Be Catholic and a Socialist? Semicolon, no, here's why, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, it was a very provocative sort of title, and had a very neat kind of communist cover to it, right? Yeah. Delightful. And, uh, you know, uh, Catholic Answers, they like doing their debates and things. And yeah. he kind of had an open challenge. And then, Sam, you accepted this thing. So uh, why did you do that? What's your uh, background in all of this? And why did you answer the call for intellectual combat? Sure. I mean, I want to be fair to Catholic Answers and to Trent. Um, I didn't, uh, if there was a call made, I wasn't aware. The way I came to find this out was... A buddy of mine, um, Edmund from the show, um, he posted a link to uh, the book, and just the the super red scare uh, cover, and then the title. I, as I sometimes do, just kind of popped off from the hip about it, 
Um, it turns out I didn't know Trent, but apparently like everybody else I know knows Trent. Um, so he was quickly, you could say tagged, uh, into that. And he over social media, um, offered me, uh, to debate. And I quickly Mm -hmm. said, yes, uh, my background in high school. In fact, the way I got into philosophy was through competitive Lincoln Douglas debate. So it was kind of like, (laughs) uh, it was like a, yeah, that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Cool. Awesome. And then, and with, so now, just for those who don't know, um, what do you do for a living? Like, what's right. your background? Yeah. Uh, the formal uh, one line is I am an associate professor of philosophy of education and the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia. Nice. Yeah. Which is a beautiful campus. Yes. Especially right now. I, I believe yeah. our campus in the summer is just glorious yeah. do you live near the campus i live on campus you i'm, live ca- on I'm, campus, ca- I'm yeah. talking to you right now from campus south campus ubc's UBC, ubc's campus is unique because really it's just like you have it's like an intermixing of houses and shops and buildings and it's just one big thing it's a city unto yeah. itself and then you have it the is- vistas of the mountains the beaches yep. the temperate rainforest and the salish sea all in front of you all at once it's ridiculous I don't believe I don't believe this at all. We we all know that Canada is covered in snow and darkness for at least half the year, right. and I refuse to believe yeah. anything that's not that. That's Pittsburgh. Yeah, that is a little bit Pittsburgh. I'm not gonna lie. By the way, I do love love Pittsburgh. I have a lot. Of, it's actually the last U.S. city I was in was Pittsburgh for the Philosophy of Education Society meeting in March. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I, I bet it was tough to leave to go back to uh, to Canada. I bet that was really hard. Yeah, it was difficult. Did you go to Permantis? <laughs> So I, I did a, so my first date with my wife was at Pamani Brothers, because uh, we went to Steubenville. Um, but then um, I ate Pamani Brothers in the airport, and it was awful. Oh, in the airport. Right. No, you don't yeah. want to go to that yeah, one. You I don't want to go to that one. There's a few good ones. And, and just so you know, if you want to be a real Yinzer, and that's yeah. someone from, from Pittsburgh, yeah. it's not Pramantis, or it's Pramanis, okay? Yeah, we know. call it Pramanis. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we Canadians, we, we elongate the A's, so... <laughs> All right. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So you know, on the show, we've we've dealt with a like I guess the main topics of our show have a lot have been a lot around um, the Catholic sacramental vision, um, and topics around that. I think it's probably the fairest way to say it. We haven't really dove deeply into topics around Catholic social teaching, and and part of that. I think is a little at least on my end personally. Or, or Catholic visions of politics and political right, discourse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think uh, Harris and I are both critical of the political culture in America. And if I'm preaching about things, it's usually against that political culture of um, Americanism put- is a heresy. Yes. And of putting your political party before the faith and that sort of thing. So we've touched on it generally. And uh, but I watched your guys uh, debate and it began to stir like a lot of thoughts. So. I'm going to ask the annoying question to start off. So what is socialism? I'm oh, sorry. I, I, I did the wrong inflection. What is socialism? Sure. There you go. <laughs> well, socialism uh, as a word is, uh, is an interesting entity that political scientists study. I, I'm not a political scientist. Uh, socialism, by the way, as a sort of concept and, and political economy is a slightly different word. Uh, I, I see socialism 
in a fairly unsophisticated way as a thing that happens in history uh, and time. And in particular, I think there's sort of maybe three particular phases where socialism happens. One's in the 19th century in response to industrial capitalism. Uh, the second, I, I believe, is you could say the, uh, uh, the very uh, messy period between industrial capitalism and the rise of socialism, and you could say the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and this would include kind of the post-war ideas and stuff. And then I think that like af the, the period after 89 is, is the period of socialism that we're in, where the term is relevant now. But if you want to understand the word, I think you got to be able to at least make those three partitions of understanding it historically. But as you can tell, like I'm doing now here, I resist a um, nominalist approach to political language. And I insist that we have to talk about this in a full historical context. So this was one of the interesting things that I took away from the debate that I mentioned when we were talking about it on the podcast was you really kind of were trying to tease out the relationship between truth and history. Yeah. Uh, which I really appreciated. Um, and that, like, I, I, I got two thoughts in my head because part of it, one of my concerns with apologetics in general is that it's too textualist. Like, mm -hmm. it, it gets very black and white. This is what this document says. Therefore, this is the position you have to hold. It kind of tries to bludgeon people into a position. But it refuses to understand what is the history of the text, where does it come from? How did, so? Can you like talk about why 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 you emphasize this importance on on history and its relationship to truth to a text, so that we can? Uh, because I think that is a that is something that is often missing in discourse. Yeah, and is so essential. Yeah, I mean, there is a sort of um, like when I teach students um, how to interpret philosophical texts, I, I'm a bit of a like I tell them, read the lines, don't read between the lines. Like, like just read what it, right. just read what it says, you know. Right. Um, but of course, that's the first thing I tell them. There's layers and layers and layers. It's kind of mm -hmm. like an interpretation of scripture. Like, obviously, the mm -hmm. literal interpretation of scripture is a real player in the game of exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, but even for someone, and I'm not in so. Oh, I almost said something bad talking to priests. I mean, I almost said even a homilist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, we bring you on to our. I, I know, I know. It's so you can't nasty. Help yourself. No, it's I know. Okay, I just we're went very off. Merciful. It's okay. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, um, <laughs> even someone trying to sort of communicate more than maybe conduct, you might say, like primary text scholarship, you can't rely on a on a on 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 a solely you know literalist interpretation, uh, uh, even for that. So. To, right. to, to me, my biggest problem, and and you were really bold on the show. I listened to your show and the kind of critique of apologetics. Like that's probably not what I would say openly, but there is this kind of <laughs> high school proof texting policy yeah. approach. And the, the bottom line is that the church is obviously responding to the real world, but church documents are not policies and procedures. Yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And and even in terms of a rule, we have a beautiful tradition of the rules from the rule of St. Benedict all the way through. Even the Catholic understanding of the rule is not as a policy document. So to me, there's something very bizarre and bureaucratic, and no offense to my dear uh, brother in Christ, kind of American about this way of of uh, of reading church documents, which I find, uh, on the one hand, 
foreign to the Catholic intellectual tradition, but as an American, yeah. it's also pretty familiar. Like I, I know what that move is. It also relates to a very in- conservative interpretation of like the U.S. Constitution, for instance, which is very sola scriptura, very Protestant. Uh, yeah, so, I have okay, because I've always had this kind of theory around America that it's always been a literalist culture, like, and I, I mean. I don't know Can enough about the history. Can I stop you just for a yes. second? Uh, let me just stop you for a second. Sorry. Because yes. I actually wanted to start with this, but I didn't. Um, because we have a, you know listeners who listen to all kinds of different podcasts and all yes. kinds of different things. Sure. I think what's, what's very important and what we're trying to do with this conversation in all times um, is, you know, um, we're, we're discussing certain ideas that may have caused people visceral reactions because mm-hmm. of the culture we've grown up in, right? right. And I know for sure, as soon as we said socialism, uh, that fired up the passions of a lot of people, right? <laughs> uh, but the Catholic, you know, the Catholic mind is never afraid of ideas, you know? Exactly. Uh, we're always willing to engage and discuss and listen. And this is what makes um, the debate format kind of difficult mm. because as much as we try to be objective and there's, there's great virtue in attempting to be objective, we have to acknowledge that we're not objective creatures, That's right. that we have underlying emotions and passions that go behind this. And you actually had a moment of this in the debate, which I thought was fascinating yeah. and uh, where it's like, okay, let's kind of talk about where we're coming from. Let's enter into a vulnerable space where it's like, why are my passions being inflamed by this? Why do I care about this so much? I think I asked I him about his, in, his his moral intuitions. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, a good way of phrasing it. Um, because even, mm. you know, even the act of asking someone to be vulnerable about things is a, is a delicate sort of thing. Sure. Um, so I, I think, think he honestly thought, though, that I was leading up to some kind of, like, trick question that was just going to, like, mm. rain down on him. Uh, right. Sure, which is because too bad. that's You're like the nature of like the debate is kind of a game. Sure, and sometimes even and this is not this is not just about him, but like apologetics can be kind of a game as well. I think that's mm-hmm. part of the appeal to it, and that's why you know it appealed to me as a young man. It appeals to a lot of people continually. Totally. Is because it's kind of fun, absolutely. Right? And there's something and even logic. intellectually. Yeah, there's something stimulating about that and good. But even as I say that, we have to acknowledge that I kind of like this because it's fun. Okay, yeah. so yeah. this is my big preface to say. It's good to allow yourself to be uncomfortable as a Catholic, to engage in difficult ideas. Like that's why it was so important on a different level for me to study Nietzsche and to engage with that text in a strong way. Because yeah. even in his errors, there were there were important things to pull out of that and discuss. So yeah. anyone who hasn't turned us off yet, I just would encourage you to keep listening as we kind of just talk through this. Okay. Yeah. I totally interrupted your train of thought, Harrison. I don't know if you remember where you were. You I were about do. to talk about America. That's why I said yes. this, because we have a lot of American <laughs> listeners, and this Fair Canadian enough. was about to Fair tell enough. us about our country, okay? On I, Canada I, lo- I love, I love, well, yeah, this is what gives us our superpower. We. This is the one day a year we can we can dunk on Americans. It's great. Good. Okay. It, it, this is, I think uh, I'm going to agree with what you're about to say, but go ahead. It was about... Well, so, uh, I mean, just the, the way, the, the kind of, the people who are at the foundation... The people who are at the foundation of of America, and who are who who came over on those first boats and everything, come from a particular kind of Protestant ethos that saw liter- textual literal uh, literalism as as a very strong um, way of reading the Bible, and that's always been at the heart I find of American culture. Like for me, I've always found it fascinating that fundamentalism, like Christian fundamentalism, is largely an American phenomenon, as you know. It exists in little pockets in Canada because we're close, 
but it's not a thing here really while you have you have all those churches in the states that really go to this so like i what i see like the way of apologetics or legal interpretation and everything it goes to this this heart of like there's a there is a literal there is a literalist textualist approach to documents in general that tends to eschew history in american culture yeah and i think it leads also to a more fundamental misunderstanding which to me is the philosophical problem which is a confusion of sort of legality with morality yeah and so i think there's this idea that like because i told i was i i was really open with trent that like this is a horrible resolution this is proof for the claim but it's not a claim it's not like a because he was actually proof text quoting uh the last sentence of paragraph 120 of Ano. Uh, and I was like, you should use that as evidence, but it's really not a good faith way to open up a debate because you put me in the position of seeming prima facie, right? As if I'm having to oppose the church, which, I mean, I'm comfortable clarifying what I really am doing, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit awkward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the view uh, that he had and that the people sympathetic to his case have is that there was almost like this legal basis for yeah. his kind of line and so, but, but, but my argument was never legal and it was never economic. It was moral. I believe that, 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 that the Catholic social teaching is part of the moral teaching of the church. And this is what the church says, right? Yeah. And so let's get into a little bit about uh, some of those things. So, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, as you've given, um, I, you were also on uh, my friend Taylor uh, Schroll's podcast. Yeah. And you had talked about how um, your definition of, uh, socialism was was a little bit soft and purposefully mm-hmm. so. Yeah, and that's not actually something that I have any sort of difficulty with, um, because it seems like uh, socialism, as as we kind of can understand it now, at least in one way, is I think more of a critique than it is a complete system. Yeah, I couldn't so can agree talk about with this more. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> this is actually the. <laughs> the even softer part of it is that like my historical understanding of socialism is that basically unlike capitalism or anarchism or even fascism or a lot of the isms socialism doesn't really have a clear view of the good life it's really only a particular critique that emerges i think today perhaps maybe the maybe social democracy is acquiring through democracy some kind of account of the good life but historically socialism has exactly it's been um it's been it's been a critique and not a whole that this is what has divided communists and socialists so much historically because communists want to say no we understand the utopia through revolution and socialists are like "Uh -uh, not really we're not comfortable with capitalism but we don't want to go full-blown revolution and you know um so I, i i agree with that and the other part about the soft definition is that like look if someone wants to especially in a debate context get me to into hard definitions they better come with the really hard definition of definition and I'm being really serious here. If you don't have a definition of definition that's hard, then I'm not going to play hard definition games because it's a setup. And my hard definition of definitions is an adequate description of what is the case. And I believe that I was capable of, of supplying that. And so if anybody wants to play hardball with me, I will play hardball, but only on premises that are clear. Yeah. Cool. My brain exploded for a moment when you said definition of definition. <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna have to pick up pieces after this. and scattered about the room. Um, but I think, I think you know, we haven't really talked about socialism, qua socialism. No, no. But I think what's more like interesting is just more the I, what what is the Catholic understanding of the common good? Absolutely. Um, 
yeah. think that's the more important thing. Yeah. So, so do you want to talk a little bit about that? That's a that's a soft question. Um, I mean, but this, like, I'll give it a soft answer. I, I, it's so funny because like I find myself modulating my ideas according to the audiences that I'm in. I think this has had to do yeah. with like I teach at a secular university. I'm a lifelong cradle Catholic. You know, let's talk a lot in the context of the church. Um, one of the things I like to emphasize when I'm speaking to what we might call a so-called secular audience is the kind of catholicity of of secular ideas including the word secular like it's a it's a it's a christian concept when i talk to catholics so i actually like to make the other point which is and this is my way of answering the common good our ideas about the common good are not like inherently christian they're very deeply hellenistic and they come out of a tradition of thinking about um the good life uh, the good, the good beyond being in Plato, um, but also with an idea that the city or the polis or the civic entity that emerges always has this analogy to the divine and also to the human soul. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a full-blown Catholic um, understanding of of the common good has to realize that this is a bouncy um, conversation where at the moment where we kind of can affix ourselves on a particular good, like the face of the poor, there we see the face of Christ. There emerges uh, the, our, our conscience and our soul's relation. So there's this very beautiful, moving, almost you could say Trinitarian bounciness in um, Catholic understanding that to me is a um, an agility and a flexibility that requires what this softness is about. And that kind of a politics in terms of its conceptual requirements cannot really live beside the kind of individualism or negative conceptions of freedom or legalism or Americanism that I think have become habituated into a kind of discourse of a particular kind of media that you and I all know uh, is yes. rampant out there. Yeah. And so I think Catholic social teaching, like I had one class of it in seminary. And uh, the big takeaway for me was the Adam, Adam bomb was bad. Uh, so that was my big conversion of the moment. And if that's the only thing I got of it, I think that's a big deal. And we can have a whole another discussion about that later because that's another kind of triggering thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think one of the major differences between uh, Catholic thought and American thought is that, so it, I think in general, uh, American thought is that government is a necessary evil, that we have to put checks and balances and try to rein in the human person as much as we can. And capitalism has a similar sort of thing where it's kind of based on the avarice of man and how can we turn this into a kind of good, right? So open market, free market systems um, that it almost tricks the human being into end up doing good for society, it, 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 loosely. But I think the Catholic idea is a little bit different as far as, like, we don't see government or uh, society or the coming together of people uh, and the governance of people as a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Um, it's, 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 we are meant to bring people together. Um, people working towards a certain, you know, the good of all is a positive thing. So I feel like there's a, a major difference between those two things. Tell me if I'm right or wrong or if I'm off base. No, I think you're right. I just keep seeing um, uh, Father Harrison over there trying to jump into the uh, microphone. No, no, it's all good. Okay. No. Are <laughs> no, you no, sure? It's a, See, I've gotten really good at ignoring him because we've done a lot of episodes together. Okay. <laughs> and he's, he's on the lead on this podcast. I'm thinking. I got I got things. Go ahead. Go nuts. No, I mean, I, I, th- I think that makes... Um, 
I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess I would also remind the 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 sort of audience that you're speaking to, though, that um, there are also like far less uh, loaded um, balances that come into play depending on like, for instance, just the the international context you're speaking from. The three examples I gave from uh, of blesseds and venerables, uh, they came from three three different places: Italy, uh, obviously in Western Europe, and then Africa, Tanzania, and then Brazil in South America. And so I think that the, another another way, because because my problem with with talking about capitalism writ large is that I don't want to do to capitalism what I felt was being done to socialism. There's mm-hmm. obviously a difference between the Austrian school and the Chicago school. There's obviously a difference mm-hmm. between anarcho-syndicalism uh, and uh, more moderate forms of of capitalism. Even even Acton will admit that they're, they don't want crony capitalism, they call it, right? So it's also interesting, though, by the way, that the same capitalists who accuse all socialists of just being communists would never apply that kind of analysis to their own position on, on capitalism. They, they want to mm-hmm. give a more nuanced understanding. And the reason yeah. I say that is that, like, I think that in addition to what you said, I would just add that capitalism also needs to be understood within its local terrain and understanding. And in the United States, this tension in particular between the, the kind of Austrian and Chicago idea and then the emergence of a thing that some people call neoliberalism you know, this isn't just academic. This is actually a really big part. People's head exploded when I said China. When he asked <laughs> me, I, <laughs> I, I, I stood and applauded. Everyone was, you know, they were like, how can you say that? You know, and I'm just like, look at Hong Kong, you know. And by the way, here in Vancouver, I have a really, really um, clear as clear of a, a look to Hong Kong and, and, and Hong Kong democracy politics as one can have, I think, maybe outside San Francisco, that's not Hong Kong. And so to me, it just seems obvious that like global capitalism and the kind of capitalism that we see operating within the communist state of mainland China is a great example of a kind of capitalism that I'm not really comfortable talking about at a right. more local level or whatever. So I think those distinctions have to be added to what you said, but everything you said made sure. sense. And the other thing I want, like, I think what I want to bring in with, with regards to Catholic social teaching is I think what, what people don't seem to recognize is that in the history of the church, when she's addressing the problem of the common good, she's always addressing it according to the historical circumstances she's in. The modern state is relatively new mm-hmm. in the history of the church. And Catholic social teaching is the church's way of attempting to, I mean, it's very interesting when you start reading the history around um the papal states and all this stuff and the almost like there was all there's a crisis of identity almost in the early modern period in the church because what the state is has changed so much socially that the church has to change how she addresses the problems of the common good and this is the context out of which um with 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 leo the 13th that catholic social teaching really starts to emerge where it's no longer addressing things like the rights of kings and stuff like that but now is addressing democracy and unions and all of these things and then it's a really in-depth tradition um um what i find so beautiful is like it, it actually it's only in catholic social teaching i think where you where you have documents that are literally named for like centesimus annus right it's literally a <laughs> hundred years since rerum novarum right yeah yeah yeah, it, yeah, yeah. 
you don't see that in any other church document. It's really intentionally trying to build on this on this idea of how does the church navigate this new social situation? And it's not easy and it's complex because what you're saying is right. Like what capitalism looks like in Canada is very different than what mm-hmm. capitalism looks like in the United States. And and it's going to be very different than what it looks like in Brazil and so on and so forth. And, oh, or right. and even what and even what certain socialist ideas in Canada look like. Because that's the other thing. I don't think people realize like socialism and capitalism are kind of in bed together in Canada, and it's they're kind of in bed together in the states too. Oh, totally. And, and by the way, one really cool because you know I relied on kind of the technical um, counterfactual approach in my debate. But one counterfactual I didn't know about and I was slapped on the wrist for it, and I was grateful for the correction um, was from the Scottish Socialists. So apparently in Scotland, their Socialist Party is pretty much one of those like um, de facto Catholic parties. Like the head of the Catholic Socialist Party in Scotland is a traditionalist Catholic. Um yeah. And they really got on my case about like, you really went to the global south, you know, and you forgot about the the decolonial project in the north, you know. And so (laughs) I took their uh, I took their 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 uh, admonition uh, uh, in in a great spirit because it added to that. And that adds to your point. Right. Is that to me, I don't know why Catholics can't read these heavily historicized, even their titles tell you that, um, documents in dialogue with like actual policy because that's what's a weird thing so cat it seems to me that trent's approach is to treat church documents as policy yet ignore concrete policies when my position is simply to well let's i mean do we want to talk about medicare for all do we want to talk about the difference between the plan that got booted out of the 90s and the clinton administration and the one that obama managed to get do we want to talk about how obama refused to to ram this down the nation's throat when he had the house and the senate in his hand and he just gotten elected and kind of sat on his hands until he could get a so-called consensus about i mean now you see how i feel about that but anyway i mean we can, Catholics can talk about policy, but they just can't pretend that the Catholic documents are the policy and they have to bring those documents in to bear on the policy. The other thing I wanted to say, and by the way, I picked up some more time, so we're, we're a little bit better. Um, Great. It, the, the other thing I wanted to say is that, um, and this I think is actually super important, the church, not only in relation to the nation state, which is this kind of like live, but also the church's relation to modernity fundamentally changes in the 19th century. Vatican yeah. I was the was the bright white line that the church decided to cross. And it was not an easy crossing, and it was contentious, and it was difficult. And in many ways, when we think about this within the span of church history across the 2020 years we're talking about, the relative proximity of Vatican I and II and our proximity to them means we're still figuring out what it means to be a modern church. Mm-hmm. And... The, the anti-modernism now, if I wanted to read this in a kind of fancy way, is you might say the kind of dialectical stage of protest against the fact that it's kind of starting to set in, but only now, right? Yeah. We don't see tradies 15 years ago, right? We didn't, unheard of. So to me, like, we have to be able to not only think about socialism, uh, 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 capitalism, history, church documents, policies, if you want them, we also have to realize that there's an epochal aspect to to the church's thinking and this epoch that we're that we're trying to figure out now is still modernism maybe others are in postmodernity. that's not us we're still trying to figure out what it means to be a modern church yes 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 we oh man yes um 
I have about 20 thoughts going through my head right now, which is, Anthony, you say something, because I need to focus my head, my thoughts. Because uh, I don't want to, uh, um, I'll just vamp a little bit, uh, and you can, we can jump back to whatever you're thinking okay. of. But I think, you know, the, the reason for, like, the, the visceral reaction when an American Catholic hears socialism, I think is a little bit understandable. Sure. Right? Because, you know, they'll look at uh, a Bernie Sanders figure, who is, you know, the champion of something that's socialism, right? And the idea Only of in America, by the way. All right. my socialist okay. friends won't even let him be a socialist. So like he's like barely on the left. He's like sneaking over the center. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, because you know they they see the uh, a lot of the Democratic Party and the idea of giving government control over goods over Medicare, especially to them, that means that you know you're going to enshrine abortion in in Medicare. You're going to. Uh, create a revolution and the church is always a little bit wary around revolution totally. um, because a lot of things get caught up in that and a lot of times the church does to negative effects um, so I understand that visceral reaction to that and the fear of uh, giving this uh, social my, uh, socialism to the democratic party and I think that's very understandable um, but I think what we're talking about is different than what they're, they're talking about I think so, too. Um, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for the church, even when it's wrong, because when you look historically, even when the church gets a, um, a, when the church is slow on like a zeitgeist, you can always see the sort of um, uh, the reasonable, uh, the, the reasons it has for maybe being slow on certain things. Um, if you really understand the, the Bolshevik revolution, and the upheaval that took place in Russia, um, it was kind of like the last stand of of of, of a monarch a monarchy of sorts. Uh, and the Catholic Church, I think, while obviously we're talking about Russian Orthodoxy, I'm not that big of an idiot, but like I think the Church, you know, because the historical battle of of Catholicism coming out of the Middle Ages against early modernity and liberalism was this confrontation of a particular monarch uh, a monarchical style of kind of feudal uh, early mercantile uh, government and these liberal uh, uh, ideas about about government and in many ways the church held on really strongly um, because it was also imbricated in the Protestant Revolution and so on and so forth. All I'm trying to say is that, like, the reasons the church in 1931 at the publication of Quadragesimo Anno was really, really concerned is they were looking over their shoulder at a particular history that kind of slammed the door in their face on any live options working out to this, you know, uh, um, Catholic particular way. And of course, they were also standing in the doorway of a new so-called Catholic society through Franco uh, and the, fa the kind of fascist uh, nationalist idea. And the church got behind that wrongly, I think, you know, uh, yeah. the church supported that. Um, the church, the, I mean, the, a lot of, a lot of conservative Catholics, uh, in, in the thirties or in the early forties supported in France, the Vichy regime, right? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, René Grégoire Lagrange was touting its importance. <laughs> Not <laughs> Mounier. Let, let me make this really clear though. Yeah. Mounier, Emmanuel Mounier, who, by the way, I'm actually not a socialist. <laughs> I defend Catholic socialism because it's a personalist 
So I stand on Mounier's side of the Mounier-Maritain uh, divide. Uh, so Jacques Maritain and Emmanuel Mounier had this intense uh, disagreement politically while agreeing. There was a philosophical under, underbelly to it, actually. So like Maritain's Thomism didn't allow him to accept Mounier's personalism. But Mounier was against the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Vichy. And here's what's so crazy. After the end of the Third Reich, Mounier turned on the the resistance mm. because they weren't they weren't sufficiently sticking to the principles he thought that they opposed the the Vichy French to begin with. But this caused enormous amounts of scandal in the church because people at that time were also telling Mounier like this is the church's stance, and he was in very much in the minority on that. But that minority is still you could say the kind of Catholic socialism I'm talking about today. Of course, and many years later. Yeah. And I believe now I actually don't know their connections too much. I've done a lot of work on Maurice Blondel, yeah, who yeah, yeah, yeah. also was part of like the Semaine Sociale in France and stuff like that, who were trying to promote this idea of a a, um, a, a democratic socialism, right? And I always love that line by Pope Benedict, by the way. He always says, you know, democratic socialism is the best in, oh, yeah, instantiation yeah, yeah. of Catholic social teaching. Um, but. Uh, this was Blondel's point too, right? Because like, Blondel was not a Thomist either. He was personalist, phenomenological, mm -hmm. um, and had a deep trust in, in pushing modernity to its transcendence. And so he too was kind of very much involved in, in all those discussions and was very critical of, I mean, we all know he was very critical of integralism and, and the, um, mm -hmm. and the, uh, and a lot of the, uh, around l'action française, like he was, he was the critic, critic of l'action française yeah. in france and 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 really kind of worked hard and what's interesting with all that too this is this is one of the interesting things because people will look at like um a lot of the people that blondel was was fighting with the the, the a lot of the neo-thomists he was fighting with a lot of people would look a lot of people still i still hear it blondel's a modernist can't yep. be trusted yep four popes four popes wrote to blondel's bishop to say Please let Monsieur Blondel know that he has the mind and heart of the church and that he's doing good work, mm -hmm. which is just awesome and amazing. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You don't see these things. But what I want to get to is... By the way, the church condemned modernism too. Well, exactly. <laughs> this, so this gets to my questions. We've, we've done... I've done... Modernism is, is, a, is a punching bag I like to go against. And... Um, and we've done a we've done we've done a lot of talking on this podcast about about modernism and what it actually but what it also means because as you know, again people like to use it as a as just a word. Oh, and there goes anything our, I do not like is our tsunami uh, test is going off right now. Um, so, but modernism at its heart is the denial of mediation. You're my bumper, by the way. If we have a tsunami. Nice. No, literally, and oh, the, is the yeah. islands are yeah. our bumper against the Pacific yeah. Ocean. Oh, they, no, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> My brain was like going into podcast mode. <laughs> like, wait, you're gonna use this as a bumper? Oh, yeah, no, no. Don't let don't let the tsunami get in the way of this intellectual discussion. I'm we sorry, must, I'm we sorry. Fort Alberni is the last the last step for the tsunamis to hit. But because um, I wanted to kind of get back to your point you mentioned early, earlier about how the church is still trying to figure out how to exist in a modern world. Mm-hmm. And and what does modernism mean? Because like, we are still, I mean, yes, we are we are merging toward or emerging towards post modernity, but we're still also we're kind of got feet in two worlds still, I would say. Um, and for me, like one of the, I think one of the great fruits of Vatican II that we still haven't seen hmm. 
is its emphasis on sacramentality again, mm -hmm. right? Because the church as the universal sacrament of salvation is something that draws people in and unifies. Mm -hmm. And modernity, because of its denial of mediation, atomizes and isolates, mm -hmm. right? And I think I, I, these are still kind of loose thoughts in my mind here, but it, it's essentially the question, how do we live sacramentally in yeah. a non-sacramental world? Because what's interesting to me is that like a lot of the tradies are actually modernists Oh, totally. With, with, Traditionalism with a is a modern it's, phenomenon. It's just a yes, neoclassicism exactly. like we see yeah. every other it's, 25 it's, years. It, it, it's the veneer of Catholicism, right? Because what they do, like when they're talking about stuff like integralism, is they're talking about modernist views of power. Yeah. And they're trying to impose those on the church. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I guess, like, you know, Plus, you're talking one more about thing how, about modernism, yeah. though, for the, for the more yeah. maybe basic thinker here, everyone knows that someone who walks around talking about their traditions all the time is not a traditionalist. You don't have any traditions when you have to talk about them all the time. The person yeah. with tradition is the one who doesn't even realize that what they're doing is traditional. That's a traditional way of life. You don't see exactly. true traditional folk people walking around talking about how traditional they are. They have no idea there's any other option, any other way to exactly. be. That's traditional. Exactly, exactly. We're, we're so, branching off into a lot of things, yeah, right now, which I'm not mad about yeah, at all. I know. But I think, I mean, that, that points to there is a, a lack of identity among many Catholics uh, trying to figure out who we are after some years of, of not passing on what we have. And I think you see that in the, in the tradies. There is a, a genuine search for identity and sure. what it means to be Catholic. They, they sense that something it's is wrong. It's also their iconophilia, why so many of them run to the Orthodox or like a Byzantine liturgy, mm -hmm. you know, no offense to the Byzantines, but... Right. To me, there's this like aesthetic longing that sort of has a real like kind of fascist capitulation on it, but that I, I am sensitive to. What I don't like about it is, um, and this is the same point I made on the other podcast, but it's kind of happening in the church now, is it the, when the question of identity comes up, you know, the reason I actually didn't really like the word on fire Bible as much as you seem to like it, but the reason, <laughs> but the reason I loved your stuff on the mass um, and this is super petty, right? But your your discussion about the 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 mass not being uh, its telos not being directed towards the reception of of, of communion, mm -hmm. um, that completely it was like a have you seen Ratatouille the Pixar film? Mm -hmm. Yes, he, he, oh, at least I know the premise. So he eats the ratatouille and his mind goes back to being a child. And it's this beautiful like <laughs> moment of anamnesis, right? Where he, he like his, he goes back into his memory and all this stuff. So I had this anamnetic moment when I heard you say that because it is so, 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 so Mexican to go to mass and not receive communion. When you go, when you yeah. go to, 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 to a mass with a bunch of Mexicans about 50% to maybe 70 max are going to get into li in line for communion. The reasons for this are super complicated and they go all the way back into the revolution of 1910 and all these kinds of things. And mm -hmm. there's good and bad and ugly and everything you can imagine. But what I loved about your discussion was that without necessarily having a sort of ethnic discussion, you were actually validating a particular form of Catholic identity that exists mm. in the United States and sometimes freaks out white people. I've been at bilingual liturgies where it's time for communion and everybody of one, you know, uh, identity walks up and only half of the other. And it can create this very like, mm. you can imagine, right? Um, 
I, I love that. And and the reason I say that, that, that what I liked about that more than the Word on Fire, kind of the celebration of both Word on Fire and also of, you know, sacred art from the kind of Western canonical tradition, is that the optics are kind of off for the church that we're talking mm. about, right? For, for me, um, and I'm not one of those people saying blow up the canon. I'm saying opening open it all the way up, right? Um and to me, this longing for identity is a distinct burden of the kind of Whiggish, Protestant, white emptying out of identity without, by the way, the Canadian, thanks to the French and others, um, uh, move to kind of a, an aggressive multi and interculturalism. But the Americans never did that project at all. They kind of just rested on their laurels. And I think that's why we're seeing in the United States this deep aesthetic desire for identity, which is creating all these tradies and all these kind of, you know, iconophiliacs and stuff. But it's also creating, I think, a lot of the racism that we see because that's where the encounter of absence and presence happens in many cases. And of course, the way it gets acted out is is pretty ugly. I mean, I, I support, I stand with Gloria Purvis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is okay, Sam. How much time do you have? I've got uh, a, <laughs> I've got uh, fourteen more. Uh, no, no, I've got twenty-four more minutes. Okay, oh, okay, this. and so I'm having a lot of fun. So let's just move into this next topic of conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, it's still church teaching, <laughs> right, 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 right. And who cares? Our podcast, we can do what we want, yeah, and this yeah, is great. Yeah. Okay, um, okay, so. So the United States is having a moment, if you will, as the most you know simple way to sort of put it. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing, I think you're seeing a lot of talking past each other in the discourse. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of like we throw talking points at each other. We're not interested in having a conversation. And it's also difficult because there is this tendency that if your views aren't fully formed in how one sees a correct view to be formed, you're not a person to be talked to. You're a person to be destroyed, right? This is not helpful. Okay. And... Uh, with what I've seen in the discussion about racism is throwing around of certain words that aren't understood and are sometimes used as a weapon. Mm. And one of the things I think is a very important concept, but is not understood correctly, is this idea of a white privilege, right? Because a lot of times when a person hears white privilege, they're hearing a moral judgment being placed upon them, right? And privilege is not something that one chooses. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not moral. It's something that one has. Mm -hmm. So so let's say there's a, an economic privilege that a person grows up with just a lot of money. They're not a bad person. They're trying to be a good person. They may even be a good Catholic. But that person will have blind spots, right? So if he's going to someplace with a friend and there's a parking garage and it's $20 for parking, it's like, oh, just park there. It's 20 bucks. No big deal. But for that other person who maybe literally cannot afford that, mm -hmm. that becomes a very, uh, that's an insulting and uh, like aggressive thing towards them. I think this is what you see. I think this is where this a concept of white privilege happens. Mm. So for me, when all this stuff started happening, I was having a lot of conversations with people and listening to podcasts about it and wrestling with it. But you know what? I got tired of that. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm going to take a break from that. And I can take a break from that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to think about this if I do not want to. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone, whereas a black person in America, this is a part of their lives. Yeah. They can't take a break from it necessarily. So I think it's important to understand this phrase. Like it's, we need 
to be aware of our blind spots so that we can better communicate with others. Absolutely. I think there's another thing that gets a bit deeper into this. One of my worries and concerns about the discourse on race, especially in the United States, is that um, <laughs> uh, there's a cool protest sign that hippies use a lot where they're like, I was protesting the Vietnam War and I'm still here. You know, this kind of like, yeah. we're doing it over again and over again. And I've heard, especially from my black brothers and sisters, like BLM isn't any different from Black is Beautiful, which isn't different than civil rights, which isn't different than abolition, which isn't different than mm-hmm. chattel slavery, which in other words, like for them, it's like, can we talk, can we like, can the, dis- can the sort of discourse move forward? One of the things that I've really learned that I think maybe goes even a bit d- deeper than than sort of white privilege as a kind of sociological concept um, mm-hmm. is that when you read James Baldwin and 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 Ralph Ellison's book Invisible Man, when you listen to to Malcolm X and 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 King, actually not as much. He's more out. He directs his stuff more pastorally outward. But when you read this kind of uh, Toni Morrison's novels. Um, one thing I've really learned and been convicted by in, in reading the the um, American black intellectual tradition is that their understanding of whiteness is not just a, an identity marker. They all see it in themselves. There was a recent uh, uh, post by a, 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 a woman who is a light-skinned black woman and says, I am a monument to the Confederacy because my skin, this mixing of the master and the slave, this is the result this is the Confederacy. You don't need your monuments. I am your monument. I mean, it's just powerful. What I wanted, what I want to kind of let people know that, like, for instance, like I'm Mexican American, right? I'm uh, in the U.S. I'm allowed to say I'm brown. In Canada, that is reserved for my dear brothers and sisters of the South Asian community. But all I mean to say is that, as a brown person, I am white which means I can I can act white, I can present as white, I can be used by whiteness as a sort of model minority, certainly as a professor, to sort of guard against an idea of blackness. And whiteness and blackness are not just fixed, fixed identity categories. There are different ways in which we're able to understand ourselves and others. And so there are forms of even white privilege that people can find in operating inside of inside of themselves just as white racism can also operate self-hatred self-loathing being ashamed or embarrassed of yourself um not wanting to appear too black or too mexican or too this or that the fact that and i hear i'm not accusing anyone but the fact that like i get a little knot in my tummy before i'm like gonna say the r word race because it's like, mm-hmm. Ugh, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, come on, Sam. You don't want to be, you know, the Mexican-Americans go to community college, you know, Cheech and Chong kind of thing. Like, I don't want that, you know. But at the same time, it's a time to speak out, I think, right? And so to me, the place to start is, yeah, white privilege is a good analytical place to start. But I think the deeper place is to go deeper inside and realize that there's something in the interpersonal relationship between self and other that emerges historically through institutions like shadow slavery and the Jim Crow South and certain zoning laws and codes and and stuff like that, that actually have an effect on our subjectivity, on who we are as humans. Um, And there's a lot of markers that we wear. I mean, I think as priests, you probably realize that that's not just a sacramental, it's also existential, right? 
and the way you live as a priest isn't just your identity, it's my job or what have you. It's a, it's ontological. It's a part of who you are. And as you, I'm sure, know, it's a mixed bag, no? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And I think, I think this is uh, because I think there's a temptation to make the answer easy for Catholics. Mm-hmm. I think there's a temptation to say, you know, well, we are all one in Christ. There is no Eastern West. Mm-hmm. There is no Jew, Gentile. There's no male, female. Um, and there's something about that, that that's true, but it's I, I feel like it's also dismissing something else that's important. It's it, it's like the quick, easy answer. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, the church has something to speak to in this moment, uh, but it has to actually speak to it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making my point well enough or not, uh, but I think there's something, the, the, the process or the conversation has to go deeper than we're all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. Okay, but what does this mean for um, each person? I know I'm trying to say something. I'm not sure if I said it or not. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think for me, um, the, the, the Pauline uh, injunction, <laughs> even against Peter, <laughs> yeah. that we are, um, that to be a Christian is not to be a member of an ethnos, Mm-hmm. Of, of a people in in the same sense now of course this this gets over determined into anti-semitism so one has to be mm-hmm. very very careful mm-hmm. how far one walks right. down this right. but the idea that the the idea that like ignatius of antioch talks about in his letters on the way to rome of a catologos of a universal church there is something radical not only theologically but even i would argue sociologically about this idea and I think as Catholics, we shouldn't be afraid to use that as a sort of sign of hope and of contradiction, yet it shouldn't allow us, I think, from escaping the particularities of things. For instance, we have this idea in Catholic, uh, both pastoral and moral teaching of temporal punishment. If I go and commit first degree murder, I can walk into the confessional and walk out forgiven, fully forgiven in a full state of, of, of grace, right, through the power of the sacrament. But it doesn't mean that I don't have to go to my court date. It doesn't mean that I don't have to <laughs> yeah. serve my sentence. It doesn't mean any of those things. There's this temporal aspect that the church insists on keeping, um, even within the sacramental life of, of, of the faithful. And I think that this is where sometimes we see the temporal and the spiritual pitted against each other, uh, and and especially with racism. So you have the spiritual universalism of the church. We are not an ethnos, blah, blah, blah. And so therefore, I don't need to worry about Gloria Purvis getting kicked off of Guadalupe Radio Network or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think like, no, 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 no. This is our hope. This is our, our promise. This is our, our um, this is, this is Christ. But obviously we fall short and in falling short, we don't just make restitution through magic in a confessional. We have to make yeah, temporal yeah. Uh, work here. And I hear the Protestants come in and yeah. start needling us on works and faith and deeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we shouldn't be afraid of this, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, we should be afraid of it because, and I think in some ways, I mean, it's always the temptation in Christianity to over-spiritualize, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And to deny the incarnation. Yeah. And to deny our humanity and to deny the the historical temporal situation. Gnosticism is the best temptation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we, we as a church, like, always need to recognize, like, and, and, like, and this is where I think, I'm going to be a little bold here, I think 
I, 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 we've mentioned it what last week or the week before. There was uh, it was like one of the former archbishops of St. Louis um, was threatened excommunication of people who would go who would bring him to court over uh, the desegregation of of his schools. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm looking at that I'm like that is an exercise of temporal power. Mm-hmm. for the good of the unity of the church and for the good of the people. So, and, it, and it did its job too, right? It ended, it, it, it challenged people against a sin they were committing. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I hate to say it, I think, I think at least in the clerical aspect of the life of the church, we've lost that sense of temporal power mm-hmm. for the good of souls. Mm-hmm. And I think we would be better, like we need to, we need to kind of rediscover this. And I don't know, I have theories of why we've, faltered into this kind of sp- pure spiritualism but we need to like we need to realize no no we are a church who lives if we are the universal sacrament of salvation then we are we are Christ's presence here and now which takes on particular forms particular judgments particular actions to make Christ present to the world and it kind of gets at the heart then of the prophetic office of the bishop and stuff like this that the, they do have like there, there are things like Baron made this good point that the laity have a role here too. Like, like we all have a role in prophecy mm-hmm. here. It's I'm a, different. I mean, I'm a priest too. Yeah, exactly. I just happen right. to be a lay person. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 But like, like so see, I come correct to... on this show. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> our, our clericalism gimmick aside, know, we're all I about know, the priests. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're a priest, but you're not a cleric, right? Yeah. Of course not. Of course not. You know. So I just think like we need to rediscover like that we need to take this incarnational aspect seriously as a church, which means we do need to speak to injustices. We need to offer judgments or, or, or statements that challenge people against a particular sin and, and to exercise that role all because it's always out of charity. It's always out of charity. Oh, absolutely. Caritas is everything. Uh, and all of this, this, this is really to me, the summary of the, what does the catechism use seven points for catholic social teaching i mean it's just charity 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 um and to to me um and by the way i'm using the word in its caritas sense not charity Mm -hmm. like giving alms like i mean it in its most powerful and radical sense um this is something though um i like what you said about the priesthood i'm inclined to agree with the obvious like this is why I think, like, for instance, this is why education to me is so important. Um, I always say that my uh, kind of the sum total of my method as a philosopher, um, which I take to be close, if not the same exact thing to being an educator, uh, as we've seen since Socrates, um, is the, the, the understood through the parable of Goldilocks and the three bears, right? So... It's all about avoiding overdetermination and underdetermination. And of course, the just right, if you wait long enough, will become the underdetermined. Like if the porridge sits for any while, it's going to go from just right to too cold, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you go and you stick it on the fire, it's going to get too hot. In other words, like we, we, there is no static golden mean. We have to keep working through this. Aristotle calls this phrenesis, right? For me... Um, this is a real challenge, I think, for um, uh, our, our, our priests and our bishops uh, is that part of becoming modern <laughs> has they've they've taken, I think, a pastoral step back, which is wise. 
But perhaps there's ways in which this pastoral step back carries certain dangers of underdetermination mm-hmm. for, for instance, fighting for justice. Um, but then you have the scandal of the priest who suffer, you know, and I'm not just talking about on the right. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I don't like seeing a priest in Latin America with a machine gun either. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think right. you should yeah, yeah, join exactly. the guerrilla or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and so t- to me, this is a unique challenge uh, in the modern world that it's set up a new calculus of being in a way of, yeah. of like, how do we exist in the world? And I think for lay Catholics, we have to deal with that too. People ask me all the time, how can you be a professor at such a secular university? Some people say that my faculty of education is like arguably the most like hard left in Canada and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of shrug my shoulders and I say like, well, the university is like a Catholic thing. It's sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, know, I mean, I teach philosophy, like, like there's nothing profoundly un-Catholic about my daily life. Uh, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the demands of pluralism, the Canadian demands of the context of the importance of indigeneity, uh, uh, reconcil- truth and reconciliation, intercultural, like these also are burdens. I think as Catholics, our tradition is best whenever it accepts every burden and whenever mm-hmm. it doesn't out of fear um, uh, put down one th- one entity to the exception of another. I think the, the, the wild, crazy idea of Paul <laughs> was that whenever he says Gentile or Jew, servant or free, woman or more, no, that sounds like a negative statement, but it's actually a radically positive claim. He's saying we are all things, not we are none of those things. But we are all I things. I am man and woman. I am servant and free. I am Jew right. and Gentile. And to me, the, we forget about the kind of the what I call the kind of the 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 backlash of the radical universalism we see in Paul and in the early church. That is, I, he says it too in Romans. I am all things to all people. Right. Yeah. This is a side of Catholicism that if boy, if this goes wrong. I mean, yep. it's fascism, right? It's yep. it's straight up unregulated, and we should all, in that case, become Carmelites instead. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, yeah. <laughs> there's there's the moment of the demand of the gospel, and I'm torn. I don't know what to say about it, but I think always reminding ourselves that we've got to stay on our feet and and pray. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's exactly. so important, right? <laughs> yeah, that gets us back to the sacramental life, you know. Yeah, exactly, and it's hey. um, yeah, okay. yeah. I was gonna say, uh, one. I've been um, I've been reading uh, Javara and Ulrich lately, and, and and Ulrich talks about like circling thought, or or Javara talks about like suspensive thought, because we, like we need to hold like Catholic thought holds these seemingly contradictory things in tension always. Yeah, and I'm, and I think that is always the judge of 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 when we're thinking about Catholic things. Can we hold not these? Don't don't see them in opposition. Don't see them in competition, but see them in tension. Mm-hmm. And that this tension, like like a, I always say, like a suspension bridge. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. needs it needs the tensive cord yeah. to hold both sides together. Yeah. People for it to think be a the hermeneutic of continuity is about like everything fitting together perfectly. No, no way. It's about the fact that obviously nothing fits, but we're going to hold ourselves in the tension of Christ's promise yeah. and put our heads down. 
and yeah. do it anyway. But, I mean, what, but that's isn't that just the cross? Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a, the a sign of contradiction i mean that's exactly. been the 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 idea from the we're never going to be we're never going to be comfortable in this world no and at the same time the kingdom of god is right before us and right in front of exactly. us right exactly I mean, this is the the nasty catholic both and uh yeah. which i exactly. which i think is so important and and by the way to go all the way to the beginning my attempt to bring socialism to the table and a Catholic media saturated by a kind of red scare idea was not meant to kick all the other chairs off of the table. Although I wish sometimes I could get rid of the integralists. Like, honestly, do you really need them? <laughs> um, but like, but like, you know what? My brothers and sisters in Tradiste, I hear you. You're wrong, but we'll keep talking, you know. Um, Benedict XVI and On Conscience says this thing, because the whole question of those two talks is, do, do theologians need to listen to bishops? Do bishops need to listen to theologians? And his answer is simple. Well, as long as they're in regular familial discussion, quote, I mean, who cares? Basically, mm-hmm. like, just... Make sure you're at the table. It's very, it's very million. It's very kind of late million liberal kind of marketplace of ideas sort of idea. And I think it's right. I think the impulse mill has there is actually quite. Um, it, it's a fantastic model of of liberalism for discourse. What's wrong there is that people see it as an escape into relativism, but that's only obvious if you're working in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Like relativism is only a danger if there's real bad faith actors. But if we're all mm-hmm. coming in particular as Catholics who share so much, I think we can act in good faith and in good faith, differences will be differences, right? I mean, that's why I can say what I can say in Caritas to the integralist, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. to me, like this is this is the this is what I wanted to defend more than socialism. But it was the fact that that little book to me is dangerous because it says the answer is no. And I'm saying mm-hmm. the answer is not no. I'm not saying the mm-hmm. answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Good. Good. Cool. So, uh, Sam, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. I do, I do not know if we talked about what people wanted us to, but I think we talked about important things and it was very enjoyable. Regular so, familial discussion. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, If people are interested more in your thoughts or what you're doing, do you have anything to plug? Uh, Go for it. You know what? Uh, Just www.mynamesamrocha.com. I've kind of fitted the website for this little podcast tour. So dig around in there. You'll find a bunch of stuff. But uh, yeah, no pressure. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thank you both.